but just wanted to, um, you know, we mentioned, we talked about the Babylon, Babylonian Talmud versus the Jerusalem Talmud. So that's something that always fascinated me. And one of the things that fascinates me about it is that it used to be called, or at one point was called the Palestinian Talmud. <laughs> I just thought it was very, it's very ironic. There's something called the Palestinian Talmud. That's because it was written and um, at a time when it was called Palestine. So we have the Palestinian Talmud written by the Jews. So, but it's in, in the yeshiva world, in the Talmudic world, it's called the Jerusalem Talmud. So I happened to come across a, a debate just this morning, uh, last night or this morning, between the Babylonian Talmud and the Jerusalem Talmud. So I thought I'd share that. And that is, we know that when, when, um, when Leah, Leah, the, the wife of Jacob, was pregnant with Dina, with her, with her daughter, that initially that baby was supposed to be a boy. It's going to be a male. And Dina, out of compassion for her sister, Rachel, who had not had, um, had, not, had, not had children, or had, had not had, um, you know, not contributed to the 12 tribes that, that Leah foresaw that Jacob would have four, uh, 12 tribes from his wives. And she, and she realized that if she has a baby boy, she's going to be taking away uh, from Rachel, that Rachel would, would not have her portion of contribution to the tribes. So she prays that the, the fetus that's inside of her should become a female and that she should have a girl instead of a boy, so that Rachel will have a boy. And it leads to a question of, you know, what can you actually pray for? There is something called the tefillat shav, a, a uh, prayer that is empty. It's, it's meaningless because if you're, if you're praying for something that is already a done deal, so to speak, then then uh, you, you're, you're wasting your words. In other words, if something, there's, there's a question whether, you know, if somebody, God forbid, is ill, you could always pray for, for healing, right? Even if the doctors have said or whatever, you know, the doctors, the Rebbe often said the doctor's job is to heal, not to make pronouncements of, of doom. And so even when the doctor says, or all the doctors say it's impossible, there's still room for prayer. I mean, you know, the history has shown that there have been many medical miracles. So that's where there's, there's some chance. But if something is already done, like if the fetus is already male or female, you can't pray for it to be changed because that, that, would, that would be changing the laws of nature. And, um, you know, we don't, we don't pray for, for that type of a miracle. You know, the you don't pray for the seed, the seed to split. So in Leah's case, it may have been different. She was, she was uh, you know, a prophetess. She was living in the world. The miraculous is different. But the Talmud actually has this question of whether you could pray for a fetus if you want to change the gender of the fetus while it's, while it's in the womb. And according to the Babylonian Talmud, you can only pray for that within the first 40 days of gestation. Because as the Talmud says, and later shown by science, it's before 40 days, the, the gender has not yet been fixed. One of the amazing things in the Talmud, which was later confirmed thousands of years later by science.
What about after the 40 days? Can one pray for the gender to be changed? Here, the, the, the Jerusalem Talmud says, yes, you can continue to pray. And whereas the Bible Talmud says, no, it's, it's a done deal. There's, there's no reason to pray. So that's an interesting debate, uh, which I just came across. I thought I'd share that with you. And I think it does give us a little bit of a hint to how these things divide between Jerusalem Talmud and Babylonian Talmud, which, which coincides with what we talked about, which is the Jerusalem Talmud is more likely to lean in the realm of the miraculous, where the Babylonian Talmud is more uh, down to earth, so to speak. And again, that goes back to the same idea. Jerusalem Talmud written in Israel in this very holy place is coming from that perspective of a divine revelation, as opposed to the Babylonian Talmud written in exile in the diaspora outside the land of Israel is coming from a place of, of um, more divine concealment. And so that's just one example of it. thought I'd share that with you. Okay, let's look at some of our verses today. In our Parsha, we have some very famous verses, and it's always dangerous when you start rating verses because every letter of the Torah, no matter what verse it is, is critical. Uh, but we do have some famous verses, and I'm here at verse 35, where we have a verse that we say every Shabbat before we take out the Torah. It's also said on Simchat Torah, before we dance with the Torahs, and it reads as follows, Atta har'eta ladat. You have been shown in order to know ki Hashem hu elokim, that the Lord, He is God, ein od milvado. There is none else besides Him. So these three words, ein od milvado, are very big words in Judaism. What does it mean, ein od milvado? But let's have a look at Rashi first since this is a Rashi class after all. First he says, Hareta, that like the Targum says, the Aramaic translation says, Ischazita, you have been shown. Okay. Then Rashi gives us a story. He says, When exactly were we shown to know that the Lord, he is God? Other commentators say that this is, you know, through the miracles of the Exodus of Egypt, we were we, God was revealed. But Rashi learns differently, and he says, no, this happened when God gave us the Torah. That's when we got this knowledge. And Rashi gives the backstory. He says, God opened up for them, for the Jewish people, the seven heavens. He pulled back the curtains of the seven heavens. Just as he tore open the upper regions, these spiritual realms, the seven heavens, so did he tear open the lower regions, terrestrial world. And what happened when he tore it all open? He, he, he uncovered everything. Now the Jewish people were able to see that God is one, but I think even a better translation, because you have echad is one. Yechid means almost like alone, the only one. Therefore it is said, you have been shown in order to know. So what were they shown? Again, according to the other commentators, it's the, mir the miracles that happened. Yeah, in a minute, I'm just doing Parsha. It's, it's the miracles that happened in 
um, in, in Egypt. That's how they were shown to know that the Lord is God and there's none besides him. But Rashi says, no, God very clearly showed to them by revealing everything. It's like, well, is it only God? Maybe there's something out there. We can't see everything. Well, God opened everything here. This is, this is everything. And all you can see, he was very clear to them, was made crystal clear to them that there is only God. There's no other God. Now that's, um, you know, Enel Vovado is often understood that there's no other God. There's no other God. However, in the Rambam already we have, in Maimonides, in his book, Mishnah Torah, he talks about a different translation of this Enod Novado. It doesn't mean there's no other God, but rather that everything in the world, everything that we see is not, he says Enod Novado means there is nothing, there's no existence like God in the world. So it's in a way saying nothing exists outside of God. God is the only existence, right? So it's there is none else. None else sounds like there is none, no other God. But there is nothing else. Hey, no, there is nothing else. There's nothing beyond, beyond besides God. Now, what about the world that we see? The table that's sitting in front of me, the, the laptop. What about all that? So the way the Rambam describes it is he says, obviously the, the obviously the world must be an existence. Why? Why is that? Well, from a halachic perspective, if there is no world, if, if it's all imaginary, if it's all a, a figment of our imagination, then what is the Torah? What is the mitzvahs? What is putting on tefillin? What is refraining from work on Shabbat? What is all of this? What is giving a poor man a sandwich? What, what, is, what is that? The world has to be real for Torah and mitzvahs to be relevant. So what the way the Rambam explains it is not that there is no existence outside of God, but in his words, there is no existence like God's in the world. And so the, the existence that we see, the existence that is outside of God, cannot compare. It pales in comparison. It's not the same type of existence. And why is that? Because God's is the only existence that is um, necessary. It's not coincidental that God exists. It's not incidental. It is a necessary feature of God's existence that he exists, whereas all other existence is incidental. It's, it's a coincidence that it exists. It's because somebody decided, i.e. God, that this thing should exist. But as soon as God would decide this thing should not exist, that thing would not exist anymore. In other words, it doesn't have any existence um, inherently. Its existence is not owing to itself, as is the case in God, with God, whose existence owes, owes to himself, whereas it is a, every other existence owes its existence to some other power, i.e. God. And that type of existence is so, is so uh, weak and so almost non-existent in contrast to true existence. True existence is that of, of God, which is existence that must be not being powered by any other, other source. And Alter Rebbe talks about this more in the Tanya, Shari Yichabemuna, where he talks about how God is constantly bringing the world into creation. Forever your word, King David says, forever your word, O God, is in the heavens, is standing firm in the heavens. The Malshemto from the Medrash explains that the words of creation, in the, in the beginning God created heaven and earth, and he said, let there be light. All of these words of creation is what is sustaining uh, physical reality. And if those words were to 
be extracted, if that, that divine energy were to be extracted from the world, the world would cease to exist, right? It's like, you know, shining a, a flashlight, a beam or, or, a, or a projector showing a movie on the, on the screen, on the wall. As soon as you cut off the source, the, the light disappears and the, the, uh, the, image, the image disappears. Similarly, if God cut, if we cut off the source of the world, if we cut off God's light, so to speak, the world disappears. And so the existence of the world, yes, it does exist. We have to say it exists because otherwise Torah mitzvahs are not relevant. But the existence is, is, uh, cannot compete with God's existence. So again, going back to this verse, Ein od milvado, the way Rambam would translate it, and in fact he does in the Mishnah Torah, in the, right at the beginning, laws of, of the foundations of the Torah, he says, Ein milvado, there is no other existence like God's existence, right? So in other words, there is another existence, but there is no other existence like God's. That's how Rambam interprets it. However, there is a deeper and higher way of understanding it, and that is alluded to by Rashi, who says, Yechidi, and this is according to the Rebbe's interpretation of the Rashi, where, where Rashi is taking it really literally, right? Not at an even higher level, where there is no existence at all. <laughs> no existence at all from the perspective of the highest, deepest essence of God, nothing exists. Now, how does that deal with the halacha? How do we deal with the Rambam? The Rambam is addressing. The answer to that is, and this is very deep philosophically, is that God chooses, God chooses to consider this and exist, to consider this creation an existence. But if you get to that, but that's not its inherent uh, reality. And so Rashi, in his interpretation, is invoking that level of God's essence, whereby the world is, in fact, there is nothing else besides God. It's only God. Um, Rambam, on the other hand, is interpreting the verse from its halachic perspective at the state where God says, God chooses, the world is an existence, and uh, this is what makes the halacha relevant. So these are very deep ideas uh, on this verse, Einod Milvado. And I think I think that, that it, we can take it back to this idea that we've been talking about of seeing versus hearing, Right? We said that seeing was this very high, clear perception of divinity and the truth of godliness and of the Torah, whereas hearing is um, a lesser degree. There's more concealment there, and it requires the person to struggle, to climb the ladder of understanding. It's from below to above, to use the expression used in Hasidus and Kabbalah. Hearing is coming from below, from where, where you are at a lower state and climbing that ladder going higher, higher and higher to understand, to grasp. Whereas seeing is from above to below. So you're being shown something that um, is revealed to you. And that comes from above to below. This has, happens, you know, you can compare this Torah study versus, uh, you know, prayer. Prayer is you're, you're, you're sending that ladder. And Torah, you're getting something from above, receiving something from above. So these two understandings of, of Rambam versus Rashi and what we're talking about here, I think corresponds to seeing versus hearing. Rashi is talking about this very high level of, of uh, revelation of God, of the divine essence, where there is nothing. There, we're looking at things from the divine perspective where there is nothing besides God. And Rambam, in his work of Halakha, he's talking from this level of, of hearing, where the world is in existence, not 
not quite like the existence or not at all like the existence of God, but still it is an existence. And I think that these, taking it to the personal, these are, I know these are very lofty ideas, sublime ideas, but taking it to the personal, I think that what these two, what these two uh, dimensions are, or these two uh, aspects are in, when we take it to our own life is on the one hand, we're very aware of our own limitations. We're uh, very aware of our finiteness, if we're self-aware, which is a good thing. We're aware of our struggles. We're aware that we're not perfect. And then and the struggles that we have to go through to for self-growth and, and being a better Jew, being a better human being. So that's that's I would say that's the level of hearing. And it's very important. We have to have that awareness. But on the other hand, we also have to be aware of a part of ourselves that it, that transcends all of that, that transcends our finite. Is we do have a piece of the infinite within us. And we, we, we have some connection to this place where all those struggles and all of those limitations are just a figment of our imagination. In other words, on one level, it is very real and we have to deal with it. And if we ignore it, then we're, we're missing out on a big part of what we're here for. On the other hand, part of being successful in that struggle is like we'll have in the parsha soon. When you go out to war, you have to have a sense of superiority that you're going to win, that you are better than your enemy, you're higher than the enemy. It's not just against your enemy, but you're above the enemy, and that gives you the the march, the the the, the song of of uh, of triumph. Even not not waiting till you win, but actually when you go out to war, you have that. Triumphant. Where does that come from? That comes from this sense of we connect to God at the level of God's essence, where the world and everything that is in it is like not in in the in the in the contrast in the presence of this essence of God. So I think these are the two things: the seeing and the hearing. We have to have both of them. We have to have both the Rambam's approach that the world is real, and Rashi's approach, which is saying that they were, they were shown to see that there is nothing, there is only the divine essence. Uh, we have to have both of those perspectives uh, to succeed in our mission in life. And I will pause there and open it up to questions and comments from our audience. Um, Rabbi, that, that is so beautiful I, I i just actually i'm amazed um you're talking about explaining how god is everything everything else outside of that is there but it's kind of illusory on another level at the level of essence it's really that's the only truth i was just listening to an interview with a physicist today this morning where he was making the case that on the classical level of physics it's it's mostly illusion it's actually an illusion what we're seeing out there because we're measuring it in our human senses and everything. When you get to the quantum level, there's stuff happening like virtual particles that exist all throughout space that you can't even see but measure. I have no idea where this comes from. It's like there is an essence there that they, they can't touch even. All the rest seems to be kind of an illusion, he was saying. He says, I know it sounds crazy, but it's kind of an illusion. He's, yes. an, atheist. He's an atheist, by the way, so he didn't know where to take that. Right. I'm thinking in a different direction. Right. You are. So thank you. It's amazing how those come together. 
Yeah. Well, thank you, Bill, for, for mentioning that. And I've heard that before, that the science is actually coming around and, and sounding very similar to what we're taught in the Kabbalah and in, in Hasidus. Um, you know, even if it's not exactly the same idea, it's definitely a metaphor for it. And, you know, we're, as we're getting closer to the times of Mashiach, we're able to see in the physical world these expressions of these truths that we've been taught for thousands of years. Um, you know, you know the, the idea, for example, that, um, you know, the whole world is connected. You know, one deed, you know, the butterfly theory, you know, these ideas are, are the, the idea that, that God is aware of everything that's going on. You know, the, the, many of these ideas are that there's, you know, many of these ideas that we were taught, uh, they, it required a lot of faith and belief uh, to accept them because it seems to go against the reality. But now with science, we are seeing how, yes, it, it is true. If you, what you, one deed you do over here, the, the effects of it, we can see it in science. And I think that's a kind of a, a, a taste of the times of Mashiach when the physical world expresses, expresses um, the truths of the Torah. Bruce, I see your hand up. Yes, I know you talked about how important verse 35 was, <clears throat> but I wanted to call attention also to verse 32, 33, and 34. For inquire now regarding the early days that preceded you from the day that God created man on the earth, and from one end of the heaven to the other end of heaven, has there ever been anything like this great thing, or has anything like it ever been heard? Has a people ever heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of a fire like you have heard and survived? And those two words, and survived, I think is very key to the Jewish religion because every other religion on earth was started by one or two people or, or, it, was, and, or it might be based, and then you know, someone you know, learned about, about it in a dream, whereas Judaism was shown to three million people and we survived. Every other religion is based on, well, this person did this and came back in a dream and the religion started. Exactly. That's an excellent point. This is one of the, uh, you know, people looking for evidence of the Torah, how, how Judaism differs from other religions. You know, why would you choose one over the other? So this comes from the Kuzari, I believe, where he pointed this out. And it's really quite incredible that no other religion even claims to have had a mass revelation, right? And the reason for that is you cannot make up a mass revelation. You cannot say, well, yesterday... There was this God revealed himself in, uh, in San Mateo um, because you'd start asking around and you would find out that it didn't happen. But if you say I had a dream last night or God appeared in my backyard, nobody can deny it. They could choose to believe it. it would, but you know, the way that God actually reveals himself only once in history is to the Jewish people. And that's not done just to Moses, but rather to the entire people because it's it's something that you cannot deny it's, it's something that um you know you, you when you ask when you ask around you ask your you ask your parents did this happen say, yep i was there or my parents were there and so forth and that's the the um you know the fact that no other religion religion even claims it right that's that's really i mean there's thousands of religions in the world no religion claims uh, what Judaism says. So that's a great point, uh, Bruce. I'm going to leave it there. And thank you all for joining us today. And we'll see you tomorrow 
for more Parsha. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you so much. I can't be there tomorrow. I've got a doctor's appointment at 845. All right. We'll see you on Friday then. Okie doke.